Okay. Well, welcome back. Everybody's glad to be. Everybody's glad to be back. I'm sorry. Yes, and you? I got about oh five six hundred miles of driving in, so it wasn't wasn't too bad. Uh, let's see. On Friday morning, we drove to my dad's in Cleveland. We drove there, and so we left about five in the morning. Got there about a little before noon. And then we went to Oil City in western Pennsylvania. If you know where that is, it's a, close to the Ohio, about an hour from the Ohio border between Erie and Pittsburgh. And we drove back there, and then we came back then Sunday night. We drove back here and got in like 11 o'clock. So it was quite a trip, but we got to see a lot of people. So, And I got your exams graded before that, so everybody got their exams back. Average was a little bit better, so I don't know if you felt better with them. I did notice. I did, it was interesting. I noticed that seven, for seven people in the class, it was the highest of the three exams. And for three or four people, it was the lowest of the three exams. Although there was a big difference. The people who went up went way up, usually. You know, up not just a couple points, but went up you know, eight, ten points on the exam. And the ones who went down, it was usually pretty close. You know, they might have done you know, 35 on each exam. They might have had a 34 or 35 and got a 33 or something on, you know, to that extent on the exam. So it was pretty close on, on that case. But it was up about five points over the previous, or over the first exam. Not counting the second, second exam was worse, but over the first exam we averaged about a 33. This one averaged a 38. So it actually went up a little, it did do a little bit better. So um, let me see. Have this. And then we have, let me shut this. We have some stuff coming up. We have a quiz that's online and available through today. So you can take that anytime before the end of the day today. And we have a homework assignment due today. And also coming up this week is an article review. And finally the iTunes quiz, the third iTunes quiz is up and available through next Tuesday. I put it up this morning for you, so it's up and available now. You can take it any time between now and next Tuesday, so that'll give me next Tuesday to remind you as well. And that was, and I didn't write it on yours, did I? I didn't write the pictures on it, but I believe it's the pictures through, it's through Easter. So actually the 8th is the last day that it will, it can ask you about. And if I didn't tell this class, I've added one quiz to the thing. I'm going to put one more quiz on and then I'm going to drop two of them. So there's going to be one more iTunes quiz at the very end of the, end of the semester. But then I'm going to drop, instead of dropping one quiz out of them, I'm going to drop two quizzes. So it's not adding anything to you. There'll just be one extra chance to drop if you missed a quiz or did poorly on one. You have one more chance to drop, to drop that. Also today, we have, um, there's, there's an observer coming in, a department chair is coming in, and he has a meeting till like 11.30. So he'll be coming, just so when you see some strange guy walking into the classroom all of a sudden at 11.30, you know, you know what's going on. He's just coming in to do my the, uh, uh, annual observations that they do. So, so when you see him come in at some point, that's, that's, all, that's all that's going on here. So, questions? There's a few more things coming up. I'll put the rest of the detail up next week. I didn't want to write a whole board full, but we do have um, a couple other things coming up. We have a fourth exam coming up. Hey. Yes, sir. Do you, do you drop the lowest quiz? Yes. Right now I dropped the lowest quiz. I'm going to add one more iTunes quiz, making it four instead of three, so I'm going to drop two quizzes. One iTunes and one. I'll drop whatever your two lowest are. It doesn't matter. I, I normally I used to drop just the iTunes ones and keep the other ones, but D2L makes me do that manually. So I don't want to sit there and go through everybody's quizzes and say, I'm going to drop, you know, I have to figure out which one to drop. So it's, they'll do it automatically if I just set it to drop, to take, drop the two lowest quizzes. Yes? I have a quick question about the article review. Mm -hmm. If I have, um, like I got the Astronomy Magazine from, for the month of April and yeah. I already used an article from that, can I use the same oh, thing? Different article, please. But yeah, you, yeah, you can use the same. You can get one magazine should get you three or four articles out of it. So you should be able to do fine on that. Yeah, there's no reason you can't use the same, the same magazine. Other questions? Okay. Picture of the day for today is a pretty pretty one. Picture of well, it's actually it's a fox fur, a unicorn, and a Christmas tree. And if you can see all that in there, you're doing a lot better than I can. 
Um, well, the unicorn actually isn't in there. The unicorn is actually the constellation. This is located in the constellation of Monoceros, which is the unicorn. So that's where the unicorn comes from. But the fox fur is supposed to be up there somewhere in the Christmas tree. I thought I had the Christmas tree, but I had it standing up in the middle there. And when you read the description, it says it's sideways. So I'm guessing maybe this is the Christmas tree pointing this way, you know, pointing here, but I don't know. I didn't actually see that. <laughs> But what we're looking at is a star formation region. So a lot of the things we've talked about over the past couple of weeks, um, you have some very young stars that have formed that are very blue. You see the blue light reflecting off the dust in a reflection nebula. The whole thing is an emission nebula. The whole area around here, all this red is emission from hydrogen. And you see a few of the dark nebulae, especially down here. You see some very dark areas where everything is blotted out and you're not seeing any material coming from, the, from behind. You can't see any light coming from behind it. So probably deep down in there, if we could look in the infrared, these would probably be very bright and would be areas where stars are currently forming. So it would be kind of nice if we could come back in 10 million years and look at it again. You know, these stars would probably be gone. They'll have finished up their lives. They're very, they're very young stars, but they don't live very long. Those biggest blue stars don't live very long, so they'd be gone. But there might be a new cluster of stars forming down here and a completely different <coughs> nebula that we'd see. So if you can find a, the Christmas tree in it, good for you. I don't really. That one I did not get. And the fox fur is supposed to be up. Uh, I don't know if it's all the way up here, but it's up towards the upper left, I thought it said. So. But questions? Yes, sir? How far away is, uh, is this? Yeah. And I have to check that because I don't know a number off the top of my head. Uh, 2,700 light years. So 2,700 light years away, and its expanse is about 40 light years across. <coughs> yeah? are and those are the common but when it comes down to it and there's so many when you try to name all the stars you know to give them it's, it's much easier to catalog to give them a catalog name and you know I've given you some of the others there are objects that are uh, even less inventively named I mean I've given you a lot of catalogs they give you like a catalog so you've seen some of the catalog numbers but one of the objects I studied in graduate school was named this <laughs> Which really is just telling you, it's, it's all it is is the coordinates of the object. It's telling you it's at 9 hours, 17 minutes right ascension and 62.4 degrees declination. So it, took, but that, that was the, it had no other name, nothing else. That was just an object. It's a, a very, distant, uh, very distant galaxy, core of a distant galaxy. We call it an active galaxy, something we'll talk about in a little bit. But, so the names get even less. <laughs> they get even worse as you get further and deeper into it. But it is nice giving those. I mean, some of the pretty little names that you can get for the other, for the other ones are, are nice. It's nice to see that kind of name. Whether you can see the object in it or not, it's, it's nice. All right. Other questions, comments? Otherwise, we'll go on to black holes. Also inventively named, right? Slideshow. Here we are. Okay. So we were about here last time. This is what I showed you last time. And we talked about the event horizon. That's sort of the limit, how close to the black hole you can possibly get and still get away. And another name for it is the Schwarzschild radius. So that's the point at which the, speed of the, the escape speed from the black hole is equal to the speed of light. If you get that close, if you get any closer than that to the black hole, now the escape velocity is greater than the speed of light and there's no way you can escape. You can travel as fast as, you, fast as you can go, but you're not going to ever be able to get away from it. You'd have to travel faster than light to be able to escape. Any object has a Schwarzschild radius. It's just how fast you have to, how, how far down you have to condense it to make it a black hole. So if you could condense the entire Earth, you know, everything on it, down to about a centimeter, whole Earth, core, everything, you know, every person on it down to a centimeter, that would make the Earth a black hole, the Earth's mass. So you can make the Earth a black hole. It doesn't have to have a certain mass. Any amount, can do it. you can do it. 
the sun, you could take all the material in the sun, condense it down to three kilometers, it would be a black hole. How you're going to do that is a good question. You know, we have no, there's no technology that, you know, we can exist that we could actually do that to condense it down. But you, but it's possible. Yeah. So are you saying the center of black holes are like really, really, really tiny? Very, very tiny. Yes. So in, fa in fact, the theory is they're infinitely small. Yes, a point. If you've ever taken geometry and you talked about the concept of a point, I mean, it's a point. There's not, there's no size to it. There's no size to a black hole. So what makes it dangerous? Is it like the force around it, or is well, it really just? While it's so tiny, it's still got all that mass. You're not changing the mass. You have all the mass that's still here in the Earth condensed down to less than one centimeter. You had all the mass that was in the sun condensed down to a point. So it still has all the same gravity that it pulled with. When you get very close to that object, it gets, it's in very intense gravity. So the gravity gets stronger, not when you're far away, but when you're real close to it. When you're far away from a black hole, it's no big deal. In fact, we're orbiting a black hole right now, or Sun is. You know, there's a black hole at the center of the galaxy, it's going around it. We're not getting sucked into it, we're never going to get sucked into it. We're too far away that it doesn't make any difference whether it's a black hole or it's just you know, that much matter condensed you know, further apart. So, so the gravitational pull doesn't increase when it turns into a black hole? Is it no, the same? exactly the same. The only time it makes a difference is when you're close to it. When you get real close to the black hole, then all the weird effects that we'll talk about a little later come into play. But when you're far away from it, it really doesn't make, make a difference. So that Schwarzschild radius is, becomes what we call an event horizon. And event horizon just means we can't know anything about that. You know, the black hole can learn about everything. But information can get into the black hole. That's easy. You know, we can send signals into it. They'll get in, but they can't get back out. So if you were able to travel into a black hole, you know, yeah, you could do it. You could get in there and you could learn all about what's going on in the black hole, but you have no way to transmit that material back out. You have no way to transmit that information back out to anybody else. So those are the two definitions, the two terms. The Schwarzschild radius is just that radius at which the, uh, the black hole, the escape velocity of the black hole equals the speed of light. And that was actually, well, Schwarzschild, Schwarzschild determined it gravitationally from Einstein's general relativity uh, a little over, not quite 100 years ago now. But the idea of the black hole was actually much older than that. I think it was 17, late 1700s. <laughs> That they'd popped, you know, after, shortly after Newton, that you know you had an escape velocity from a, from an object that it was. Well, what if what if the escape velocity was greater than light? So sort of the concept of a black hole is old, but it's only been recently that we've been able to actually understand them. Okay, so that's where we finished up last time. Oops. So in order to go over these a little bit, we're going to talk about. Uh, Einstein's theories of relativity. There's two of them. There's special relativity, which we're going to go over first. And special relativity has a couple postulates that are made. And one of them, the first one, says that the speed of light is the maximum possible speed. So it is not possible to travel, than, travel over the speed of light. That is a postulate. And if you've taken something like geometry, a postulate is something you accept, you have to accept, you accept as part of the theory. There's no proof of this. People are looking for it. In fact, there was uh, last year, you know, the Italian scientists thought they found neutrinos that traveled faster than light. And that was, you know, very interesting because if it's true, that knocks out Einstein's relativity. All of a sudden, it's wrong. Because everything, a lot of it is based on the fact that speed of light is the maximum possible speed. It was later found that there was a problem with the experiment. They weren't able to duplicate it. They found a problem with their equipment that once they took that into account, got their values under the speed of light. The other thing about light is that it always has the same, it always travels at the same speed and it doesn't matter who's observing it. Now, that's the example shown here is that you're looking at somebody, you know, shooting a bullet out of a moving car. And if you normally think about that, you try to, you normally add those two together, you add those velocities together. So you're shooting, the car's traveling 100 kilometers an hour, the bullet gets shot out at 1,000 kilometers an hour. Well, this observer standing on the ground sees the two added together and sees that bullet traveling at 1,100 kilometers per hour. That's normally how velocities work in our everyday experience. But with light, it doesn't do the same thing. If you're the observer here, you'd observe 
the light traveling at C. C is give the, just the letter used to determine the, to, to specify the velocity of light. But an observer standing still also observes that same light beam traveling at the same speed. No matter who's observing the light, it always travels at the same speed. So those are two of the things, and because light has not only has this maximum it has a certain speed and is the maximum possible speed, it also comes down to a uh, big word of simultaneity there. And things in special, when you look at special relativity, we talk about things happening at the same time, but when you start looking out in space, that doesn't have much of a meaning in terms of things occurring at the same time because we don't you don't see it because the light takes, doesn't travel infinitely fast. It takes a certain amount of time to travel. And meaning that if right now, this instant, the moon and the sun both blew up by some odd you know, chance, the moon and the sun blew up this instant, we'll know about the moon a second later, because it takes light about a second to get there, so we'll know that. But we can sit here for five, six, seven, eight minutes. The, moon, the sun will take much longer before we know about it. But if you're at a different position, if you're at Mercury, then you'll see the sun blow up first and then the moon blow up, our moon blow up, because Mercury is closer to the sun than it is to the Earth. So depending on where you are in the universe, and you can think about that in terms of we just looked at that nebula, what did I say, what did I say it was, 20, 3,500 light years or something? 2,700 light years away. So I mean, it could have blown up, you know, a thousand, something in there could have blown up a thousand years ago and we're still not going to know about it for another 1,700 years. So it's just things that we say happen at the same time. You have to watch the reference frames. Yes, sir. All right. This is a really off-the-wall question. That's okay. What sort of uh, revolves around what you're talking about? So say that you were um, you know, thousands of light years away from Earth, mm -hmm. and you technically had like a telescope that was you know, super powerful that could see things on Earth. Okay. So could you technically see how things were like you know, thousands of years ago? You would see things as they were thousands like, of years ago. Years that's what you would see. If you'd have to have that Im immensely powered tel telescope that can separate the Earth from the Sun, you know, and could see. But I mean, I see your point. Yeah, if you could, if you could detect it, you could see what it is like. Right? You would see what it is like then, not what it is like now. So that's one. That's one of the one of special relativity. But special relativity has a couple other aspects too. There's no absolute frame of reference, no, no, no state of rest. There's no place that is, you know, usually when you're writing, when you're like doing a science experiment, you have some place that's at rest if you're looking at the motion of something. And under special relativity, there is no absolute state of rest. So everything is in motion relative to everything else, sort of the idea of the theory of relativity. So you don't know whether we're moving, are we moving, or are they moving. And if you're just moving at a constant speed, it's difficult to tell who's really doing the moving or if everything else is moving relative to you. And you sometimes notice this type of thing, like when you're, if you're in the car, you're at the, in the car at a stop sign, and you sort of wonder why this car next to you is slowly rolling backwards very slowly, and you've probably had that effect, you're stopped, at the, and then you realize, you put your foot down further on the brake and you stop, and realize you were creeping, but you went so slow, you didn't really notice, it looked like the other cars was move, were moving backwards relative to you, and it's the same kind of idea, there is no state of rest, it's very difficult to tell who's doing the moving, unless you're accelerating real fast and doing, you know, then you can tell that you're doing the moving relative, but when you're moving very, very slowly as you start it, and if things are moving slowly at a constant speed, you really can't tell who's moving. And the other thing is that space and time are not two, bless you, are not two separate things. They are, it's a space-time. So when you look at Einstein's theories, it's all space and time are intertwined together. You can't separate them. And it's gotten even more complicated with some of the new theories now, and you get string theory, and you've got you know, 11, 12, however many dimensions, and all folded in on one. But you have all of this together. But space and time are not two separate things. They actually are, are dependent upon each other. What these give us are a couple of effects that occur when you travel at very fast speeds. Now, these speeds are very good fractions of the speed of light. So you know, a tenth of the speed of light, you might barely see some of these. 
20%, 30%, 40%. In other words, they're not numbers that you're familiar with. They're not speeds that you're going to get to in a car or a plane or a rocket ship or anything else. So they're not speeds that we're familiar with. But when you get objects moving this fast, certain things happen and the first of them is what we call time dilation. Time dilation just means that if you're moving, a moving clock runs slower than a stationary clock. So if you're in a car, you're, the clock in the car is running a little bit slower than the clock of somebody stationary on the ground. If you're in an airplane, flying in an airplane, time is running a little bit slower. Now it is, and you, it's actually something we can measure. I mean, the experiment's been done that you take two very accurate, we call atomic clocks, and put them in, you know, put them in airplanes and have them fly around, fly, fly around, take a trip around the world and come back and compare them to a master clock that stayed at rest. And guess what? They didn't move quite as fast. They moved a little bit slower. And it's, again, you can only measure it because you have extremely accurate times, but they, it is correct. It has been measured to be correct. So time dilation is, is one, just one effect that we get of moving very fast to, close to the speed of light. It gets, and it gets, these all get worse and worse as you get close to the speed of light. So when you're talking about an airplane and you're talking about, you know, billionths of a second change over a trip around the earth, I mean, it's not something that's going to make a difference in your everyday life. When you start moving at big fractions of the speed of light, it, ca it can make a big difference. It would make a tremendous difference. And in fact, Time dilation works in terms of particles coming through the, one is cosmic rays coming through the atmosphere. They strike the atmosphere. And they create a type of particle that has a life of about, what is it, about a millionth of a second. So, very short time. Millionth of a second, even if you're traveling at the speed of light, well, you're not going to make it down to the ground. But these particles make it to the ground because of time dilation. Because they're traveling so fast, their internal clocks are so slow that they, it takes them longer to decay than it otherwise would have. You know, in, in a millionth of a second, you might make it a kilometer, about a kilometer? I think they travel about a kilometer, a little less than a kilometer in the time. At the time rate they have, so they're not going to get very far through our atmosphere. One kilometer is still not much through our atmosphere. You're striking the upper atmosphere. But they can actually make it down to the Earth and be detected and they never should. They should not be able to if time dilation did not occur. So time dilation is one. Length contraction is another. When you're traveling at very large percentages of the speed of light, so if you have a rocket ship traveling at the speed of light very fast in this direction, well, someone observing it doesn't see it as that big. They see it the faster it goes, the more shrunk it gets in that direction. So the rocket ship gets, you know, smaller and smaller in that direction. Or, you know, imagine a train. If you could have a train traveling at the speed of light, it would get shrunk in the direction of which it's moving. So only in the one direction. The other one that causes, the, here's one that causes a big problem, is the mass increases. So your mass also gets larger and larger as you travel faster. So that means you have a little bit more mass when you're in an airplane traveling at a high speed than when you're on the ground. So, if you want to lose weight, you stay down. <laughs> don't, don't move much, right? But it also causes a problem. We you know, talk about, well, we want to travel faster than light. Why can't we go travel faster than light? Well, here's one of the big problems. The mass increases as you get closer and closer to the speed of light. Now, it's hardly noticeable. It wouldn't even be hardly be measurable in terms of what we can measure on Earth with speeds that we're used to. But when you get up to higher and higher speeds, that mass gets larger and larger. So you have your rocket ship and you're accelerating to half the speed of light. Well, you can get there. But when you start getting closer and closer to three quarters, nine tenths, 90% of the speed of light, 99% of the speed of light, its mass has increased so much that you need more energy to try to accelerate it. You want to accelerate it faster, you need more energy, and you don't have it. You know, eventually it comes to the point where the mass at the speed of light, according to Einstein's equation, becomes infinite. So that's why you can't travel faster than Leonardo. How are you going to accelerate something that has an infinite mass? You need an infinite amount of energy. And that's not possible, right? You know, as my four-year-old likes to say, infinity is not a number, it's a concept. So I don't know where she got that, but she came up with it at some point. <laughs> when, I came up, when I started telling her I love her infinity for some reason, and she'd, she'd sit there with her hands, infinity is not even a number, it's a concept. So, but. But, so that's, but the mass would become infinite at that point. So you could never get there, you could never accelerate it over the speed of light. Unless Einstein's wrong. You know, 
Newton was good for a couple hundred years. Could something change? Could something change? Could we find something different? It's possible. I mean, they're constantly looking like the Italian group that we had. You know, look for some to travel faster than light. Question or? Yeah, I had a question about you talking about space time. Sure. Not that it would work on this because the speeds wouldn't be comparable to do anything like that. The speeds that they're talking, I mean, even, even you know, a military jet aircraft and things would not be coming close to the kind of speeds that you need. I mean, space, space shuttle doesn't go that fast, yeah, even in reentry. Yeah, nothing that, uh, nothing that I'm aware of, at least, that would. Yes, sir? Um, you said that, well, you know, Einstein said that um, the faster you go, the more mass you have, right. the more energy you're going to have to produce. The more energy you'd need to accelerate yeah. that object. So the speed of light is a, is a, is a finite, finite number. Is a number, yes. 300,000 kilometers per second. So the, is there going to be like a certain point where your mass can't increase anymore? Accor not according to the equations. It keeps increasing right up to the speed of light. It gets well, even when you reach the speed of light, it, it'll still keep increasing? What the equations would do over the speed of light is they w it, things would become, you'd start getting imaginary numbers and <coughs> things like that. If you've studied, look at any of that in math, you'd start getting all sorts of odds. I mean, the equations would break down at the speed of light, essentially. You'd need something else to explain what would happen beyond that. So, so we don't know what we would do when, if we ever reached yeah, because if you ever reached it, you'd never, you'd never, we'd never be able to. His equations, you don't have, you know, won't be tested on it, but they give you this a formula that ends up with. It looks like that. No, it won't be on the test. This is the velocity you're traveling. This is the speed of light. If you're traveling faster than light, then that means that this number is greater than one, because v divided by c would then be greater than one. And 1 minus something greater than 1 is, and you have the square root of a negative number, you start getting imagined. I mean, it's, it breaks, the equations break down. They work fine right up to the speed of light, because it'll still give you a real number, but that's where they break down, so we'd need some other, you know, someone could come up with some other theory, some other mathematical theory that might explain, well, this is close and it works in some cases, but if you get to the speed of light or real, extremely close, then something else happens. And that's a possibility. But there's nothing that we have as of yet that explains it as well as Einstein's theory. So basically, we don't, we don't know. We don't know. And we'll see the same thing with black holes. <laughs> and the last one was the aberration of angles. And aberration is just kind of a bending. And it's interesting that if you look at it, that if you're, tra when you're, tra if you're traveling at the speed of light or very close, they go very close to the speed of light, everything gets bent. And in fact, you can be traveling so fast towards something that I could have passed through it, so I could have passed by some of the students, but they'd still be forward, they'd still be in my field of view forward. I'd be past them, literally. But the angles and the light is all bent so much around that I still see them in front of me. So there's some really interesting, weird things that can, ha that can happen there. You know, with me walking at the speed of light, you know, or something. But if you can imagine doing it, I mean, all these very strange things happen. Nothing that's going to happen, you know, you're not going to get your car going that fast, you're not going to get an airplane, space shuttle, nothing goes that fast that we have. But a lot of interesting thing happens when we get to these very high, high speeds. All right, questions on special relativity? Again, it's just a quick summary. You could probably, I took a whole class on it, so, <laughs> years and years ago, so. General relativity, even more fun. General relativity has its own postulate, which says that it's impossible, if you're in a closed system, so you're in this elevator here with no windows, no doors, no way to see out, that there is no way to tell if you're sitting at rest here on the Earth. There's no, experiment, no physical experiment that I can do that'll tell the difference between that experiment being at rest on the Earth or being in space and being accelerated at a constant rate. There's no experiment you can do. If I drop a ball right now, it falls to the ground, right? If we couldn't see out the windows here, if we were in a completely enclosed classroom, this whole classroom was flying through space being accelerated, if I let go of the ball, the ground comes up to meet it. But the effect is the same. 
You can't tell the difference between the two. There's no experiment that you could do. Now, yeah, if you got windows, you can look out the window. Hey, I'm moving. I can see it. But if there's no windows there, you can't tell. There's not a physical experiment that you can do that tells any difference between a gravitational force or an accelerating effort. And make sure that's accelerating. So not just moving at a constant velocity. You know, if you're moving at a constant velocity, yeah, you can tell the difference. But if it's accelerating, so it's constantly going faster at exactly the same rate, there's no way that an astronaut would be able to tell the difference between these two. There's no way to tell that between, between those two. And this has special relativity. didn't talk about all about gravity. It talked about motion. So this talks about gravity and what gravity can do to different objects. So general relativity is all about gravity. And what gravity does, we look at gravity differently. We looked at gravity under Newton as a force between two objects. Well, in, under relativity, it's not, it's not the same. But what matter does is it sort of bends space and time. Again, space and time are one thing. So if we look at them as sort of a table here, but instead of a nice solid table, imagine it with like a rubber sheet on it, so that if you put something on it, it falls down. Well, if you did that and you put a rock on it, had that sheet stretched real tight, it's going to deform your space. That's your space. It's going to deform it. The heavier the rock you put on there, it's going to deform it more and more. And that's what a black hole becomes, is that you put so much mass there that you have, a big, you have almost a hole in space where you, know, you can't climb back out of it. With a black hole, you can't climb back out of it. But you think of that as how it deforms space and time. And what that does when you bend it even just a little bit, you don't even have to bend it this much, but when you bend it even a little bit, it changes the definition of a straight line. Right? A straight line on paper is you know, a flat line. A straight line on a curved surface is different. Yes, sorry, I just wanted to finish that. Um, this is why Einstein used the eclipse to, yeah. to prove his theory of relativity. Yeah. Because the light had to bend. Because the light had to bend, yes. So that's, that's the case that one of the, one of the first tests of general relativity was that it made a prediction that Newton's didn't. And you know, Einstein made, put his theory out before. He put it out in, oh, what was it, 1915 or 1916? And it made a prediction that said that it bending space, that means that light is going to travel differently. When light comes to this bent space, it's going to get curved. So light is going to therefore be bent by gravity. Now Newton said no. Newton said gravity is the force between two objects. So if you have the earth here pulling on this light beam, well this light, this light particle has zero mass. So light has no mass so gravity shouldn't affect it. So under Newton, Newton made the prediction that the gravity would not be affected, that the gravity would not affect the starlight. You know, not specifically, but essentially he made that prediction. I warned them you were coming in already. That's all so. right. Said when the strange guy comes in, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh oh. Okay. So it bends the light. So it's going to bend the light as it comes around it. So that's the prediction of general relativity. Says that when something passes, when light passes near a massive object, it's going to get bent and it's going to look like it's coming from a different direction. Now this is an extreme case, but if you're standing over here and this is a light beam, that light beam is going to look like it came from over here instead of here. And this is what you just mentioned with the solar eclipse. They said, oh, it makes a prediction. So if we look, what's the most massive object we have in the solar system is the sun. So we go, okay, that means that if we could look at stars close to the sun, they should be in slightly different positions than they would be six months later when, the, when they're on the other side of the sky. So the big experiment was they went out, look at observe an eclipse, because that's when we can actually see the stars near the sun. You know, normally go out and look there now, we can't see the stars near the sun. The sun's too bright. During an eclipse, it blocks them out, and we can actually see that. And we can actually see that, no, they're not this extreme. The sun isn't a black hole. But there was a slight difference, in, but a measurable dis dif distance difference between the two, between where the light appeared to, appeared to come from and where it should have been, and where it would have been if we looked at it, you know, pictures taken six months before. And the other one that was, the other experiment that was done there, the other prediction that it made, prediction, the other thing it helped, I should say, is that 
We talked about Kepler and the orbits of the planets and how they were all predicted by Newton. Well, Mercury's wasn't. Mercury's was wrong. Mercury's orbit never quite fit exactly the way it was supposed to move under Newton's laws. And they actually went as far as projecting perhaps that there's another planet closer to the sun than Mercury that's disturbing it. Because that would count for the gravity. You know, maybe there's something in there that we just can't see because it's so close to the sun, it's constantly buried in the sun. Uh, planet Vulcan, actually. No, nothing to do with Star Trek long before that, but the planet was being so close to the sun was the god of fire, so Vulcan was predicted that maybe it accounts for Jupiter, remember Jupiter, for Mercury not orbiting quite the way it's supposed to. But it turns out that under Einstein's equations, when you look at the motion, that they predicted Mercury's motion exactly. So Einstein was able to predict it exactly under his equations. Okay. Now when we get close to a black hole, and I think we mentioned this, we had a question on this last time we talked about black holes, that the effects, the gravitational effects really only matter, the, the, the relativity part, the, bad, the part where all the interesting things happen are only very close to the black hole. You know, a few times the event horizon, a few times the Schwarzschild radius, which was about three kilometers for something the size of the sun. So when you're talking about things that are well outside of the sun, well away from it, or a black hole, it really doesn't make any difference. We're orbiting a black hole right now. The sun is orbiting around the center of the galaxy. At the center of the galaxy, we'll find out in the next chapter, has a black hole of maybe three to four million solar masses. So we're orbiting around a black hole right now. We're never going to get sucked into it. We're constantly going around. We're so far away from it that it doesn't make any difference. Yes? If nothing can ever uh, escape it, mm -hmm. we've never seen what it looks like. Right? A black hole? Yeah. No. Can we see what a black, I mean, a black hole would really be a, it was literally a point. And it's, there's, nothing, there's nothing to see, really. There's like no disturbance. You can't see. There's, no you, we can detect, there's ways to detect them. We're going to come to that at the end of this oh. section. But yeah, there are ways to detect the effects of a black hole. Their gravity is still there, so we can detect the effects of them. But not that we can really see, you're not going to go see the black hole. There's, there's nothing there to see. But my example here just says that, you know, the sun turns into, the black, turns into a black hole right now, okay? It's not going to affect the Earth's orbit. It's going to make it very dark. It's going to make it very cold. So it's not going to be, it wouldn't be pleasant. But in terms of the Earth orbiting, we'd now have a cold, very cold rock orbiting around the sun where we are orbiting right now. But the orbit wouldn't change. Again, just compress that sun down to a black hole, not adding more mass to it, not doing anything else. If the mass doesn't change, gravity doesn't change. And that whole idea is that even under Newton and Einstein, really all the gravity acts as though it's concentrated to a point anyway. It only matters if you're further away. So if the sun turns into a black hole, the center of the galaxy turns into a black hole, the Earth turned into a black hole, well, we wouldn't be very, wouldn't be very pleasant for us, but the moon could still orbit around it just, just fine. Now when you get close to a black hole, the forces get. It's a question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So what kind of things are going to get sucked into a black hole? Because you said like the sun would turn into one, nothing would, right. nothing would change. Because if it's that close already, it would be consumed. Right. It's only material that's very close to the black hole. So if material gets close to it, then it does start. It will, it will, it's not a big, it's not, the idea is that it's not a big cosmic vacuum cleaner that's just going to sweep in everything. You know, black hole passes through and sucks up the planets and the stars. It doesn't do that. But how do, these, how do objects get closer? If they weren't already close enough to be consumed hmm. by the sun, how's it going to? You might have. We just did stellar evolution. We can turn a star into a, get rid of my numbers here. You might have. Okay, a red hole, black hole there. If you have a star that you know was a regular sized star and turned into a giant or supergiant, it might get close enough that material could get pulled into that black hole. So you could have something like that, like that, as one example. And in fact, we'll look at an example of that at the end of the chapter where you see that's one of our proof, one of our evidence for a black hole is seeing material being pulled into it from another star. So perhaps a black hole formed. The other star might have been a smaller star at the time, but it went through its life and grew. And you know, then it gets big, and you transfer, we transferred matter to the white dwarf. We talked about that in terms of a nova. We talked about the x-ray bursters, where you transfer the matter to the neutron star. Well, what do we get when we transfer matter to a black hole? 
once matter gets in there, we still get nothing. You know, anything can happen inside that event horizon and we're never going to know about it. But as you get close to the black hole, the whole idea is here is that, and we're talking about, I sort of specified here, talking about a small black hole. Small black hole means something, the mass of the sun, a couple times the mass of the sun. Um, as compared to the giant black holes that we're going to talk about in the next couple of chapters. There's a big difference. But when you get close to the event horizon of one of these black holes, those gravitational forces are very strong. But the object that's coming close to it has some size to it. So if you're getting close to the black hole, this side's getting pulled more than this side is. Remember we talked about tides in terms of the Earth, how the Earth gets pulled by the Moon, right? The Earth, one side of the Earth gets pulled a little bit more than the other side and creates the tides because the water flows. Well, when you're getting intense gravity here, you're pulling one side enough that you can actually rip the object would get ripped apart. You would actually have so much gravity on that side that the gravitational force would be stronger than the structure of the object. But so if you suck it in though, like all of it, it would just it would just, it would take it in in part. It would strip it apart, but it would take one part of it. It might go into orbit around it, but it would slowly be sucked in. Yes, when it's that close. This again, this is getting something close to the black hole. This isn't the Earth with the sun turned into a black hole. We're still going around. But if you could push that Earth closer and closer and closer, eventually you'd reach a point where it would get ripped apart. Do you know what the It would get torn. It would get torn apart. It still would take time. You, you can still. We can see things being sucked into black holes. So how, what's the space like? What's the distance? Like how close can you get? It would depend on how big the black hole is. It's usually a few times the size of the event horizon. So we're talking about things like for a solar mass that is three kilometers. So you know you're talking when you're getting into with a hundred or a thousand kilometers, you're starting to see that effect. But when you're hundreds of thousands of kilometers, I can't give you the, I don't know if an exact number on the top of my head, but you no, know, it's something closer to that. When you're getting close to that event horizon, then you start to see these effects. This kind of thing would happen. But again, this is only for a black hole. Like that question? I'm sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. We can see the material as it's spiraling into the in towards the event horizon. Once it crosses that, nope, we don't see it anymore. Oh, okay. So we see it. So that's how we like mm -hmm. detect black holes. We see the material like right. spiraling in. We see it spiraling in and it'll spiral into a disk. And that disk as it spirals faster and faster and faster heats up and throws out x-rays and gamma rays and all sorts of good stuff that we can detect easily. As long as it's outside that event horizon. What happens once it gets inside there? We can't know. Yeah, that's the whole idea. We can't know that. So, but I said for a small black hole, for something much bigger, it, wouldn't, it, would, be quite di it would be quite different. You could actually pass, there's a possibility with a very large black hole that you could pass into the event horizon without ever knowing it. So you'd never, I mean, the event horizon could be so large. And again, not for some, we're talking about things that are many millions, there are black holes that are a billion times the mass of the sun. It's possible the event horizon is so far out that the gravitational effects actually don't occur until you've passed the point where you'll no longer be able to escape. So you could pass into it without even knowing, other than that you'd never be able to get back out from where you had been. So one other thing we get here, <laughs> is as we get close to the black hole, we get a redshift. Now redshift we talked about before in terms of the Doppler effect. Right? We had the Doppler effect and when you were traveling at a fast speed, if something's traveling away from me, it's redshifted. If traveling, traveling towards me, it's blue-shifted. Blue in terms of getting close to event horizon, we get a gravitational redshift. So a redshift due just to the gravity has nothing to do with the motion. There could be motion as well, that would be, that would be the Doppler redshift. But the actual gravitational redshift is just because you're getting closer to this very intense gravity. And we mentioned with special relativity that moving clocks move faster. Well, clocks, when you get closer to a strong gravitational field, the clocks move slower as well. So meaning that a clock, if you look at a skyscraper, a clock at the bottom floor close to the Earth is going to move slower than a clock at the top floor. Again, that's something you could measure with atomic clocks. You could synchronize two atomic clocks, take one up, take one up to the top, bring them back down and compare how far off they are. And you can measure it. It's in accordance with general relativity. 
that, or that explains that that clock closer to the ground is going to move slower. Now again, the Earth is not a very strong gravitational field, so it's not all that big. It's not all that big of an amount. You're not going to notice it. You know, you're not going to. No use spending your your life at the top of a skyscraper to extend it a billionth of a second, or something. But it would be that it is something that we can measure with accurate atomic clocks. Question, sir. I was going to ask about how like, what the difference was. Said like one up at the top of the skyscraper. Yeah, it, it's measurable, but I'm I would guess it's in like the billionth of a second. It's, it's very very tiny. It's nothing that's going to ever make a difference. You know. If you want to spend your life at the top of a skyscraper to live an extra billionth of a second, I think there's too many other variables in your life that'll probably make a bigger difference than, than that. Now, the other thing is that you don't really, you won't notice it either. The person won't notice it. Yes, your clock will slow down, but the person doing the slowing doesn't really notice it. So you'll get closer to this black hole, and yes, your time will be slowing down, but everything slows down for you. So. You know, your clock slows down, your watch you're wearing slows down, your heartbeat slows down, you know, everything that's going on in you slows down. It slows, all of time slows down as, you, as you're getting closer to that black hole. So you don't see anything else. In fact, if you were looking out, you'd see everything else going by faster and faster. So it's one thing that as you get close to a black hole, you know, it's sort of a type of time travel. If you can go close to a black hole, get close to that intense one, well, you can travel then into the future because your time is slowing down so from your point of view you know maybe only a year's gone by as you came close never went in the event horizon so you can come back out if you got that got that tremendous amount of energy and then come back to a to a universe you know thousands of years in the future going back is a lot harder to go backwards you'd probably have to get inside the black hole and there'd have to be something else going on there to be able to get yourself back out but you don't notice any of that. You, you know, to you, it doesn't feel like you're going slow. You, know, you don't all of a sudden start walking slower or anything. You'd seem perfectly normal to yourself. It would seem like everything else is going faster. But you wouldn't notice the difference personally. It's happening to you. It's measurable. But it's not something that you're going to notice because everything, it's sort of everything slows down. If everything's going at half the rate, you're not going to notice the difference than if it's going at the normal rate. If everything goes the same, you know, everything starts, you walk out today and everything's going at half the speed that it normally does. Well, if everything's going at half the speed, you're not going to notice the difference. It all looks the same. It all looked the same to you. Okay, so when you get near a black hole, again, traveling near a black hole, it gets, the, the universe gets very interesting because you get, not only if you're getting to the high speeds, you get all the effects we talked about for um, special relativity, but you also get all the general relativity and you get some very interesting things that happen if you can actually travel inside. You know, if you actually get into the black hole, there's also some very interesting things that potentially could happen, but it's hard to really know about, to know about them. The other thing that happens, and I said a redshift, well, another way to look at that redshift is material leaving, again, close to that black hole. So when you're talking about something like the sun, if you condense it down to a black hole, that's about three kilometers in size. Take all the mass of the sun, condense it down to three kilometers, you got yourself a black hole. And if you send from just outside that, if you send a probe in that was sending signals out, so send a visible light signal out, as it escapes, it takes energy to get away from that black hole. Right? It takes energy to get away from the Earth. If we want to launch a rocket off into space, we've got to give it a certain amount of energy or it's not getting off the Earth. It's going to be stuck here. So you need a certain amount of energy. What happens on Earth when we try, when we tried, if we launched a rocket, if you accelerated it and tried to get it going and then turned off the rockets, what's going to happen? It's going to slow down. It's going to go slower and slower. When a light is tra trying to escape from this intense gravity, Light can't slow down. Remember, light is always travels at the speed of light. So light can never slow down, but it still has to lose energy. It's still losing energy trying to escape from this black hole. So the way the light loses energy is by the redshift. It gets shifted towards that visible light photon when you observe it from thousands of kilometers away instead of right at the black hole has been shifted and stretched into a radio wave photon. It's lost its energy by increasing its wavelength. So in instead of losing speed, which the light can't do, but maybe a ball thrown up in the air can, if I throw it up, you know, it loses speed until it gets pulled back down. Light can do the same thing. Now if you get within the black hole, you, know, you can still send light waves out, they just can't get out of the black hole. So they're not going to be able to escape. They're the gravity is going to be so intense 
that the lines are going to curve back on themselves. So the light will actually be trapped in there. So a black hole is very black for us looking into it. But if you could actually get inside, you know, there's no light exists can exist inside the black hole, it just can't get out. So inside the black hole, it's actually things called like the photon sphere where light can in, it can be very bright inside the black hole. Just the stuff just can't get out. There's no communication across that black hole. Let me see where I am. Okay, there we are. What's inside a black hole? Nobody knows. Okay. No one knows what's inside a black hole, and it doesn't it doesn't there's there's no way to tell. Theory says that it collapses down, you know, whole big mass collapses down to nothing. Point. So, you know, put the black hole, you know, if I were, if I could stand up to the gravity, I could hold the black hole between my thumb and finger if they're pushed together as close as they could possibly go. That's the theory. Is that what really happens? Our theory breaks down. We don't know what's really going to go on when you get something that small. Is there something else that stops the collapse? Like it did for a white dwarf and a neutron star, does something else happen when you get down there a little bit further? It's a good question. But most of what it is, until we have something that can really tell us what happens under those conditions, the interior of a black hole is a mystery. You know, we're not going to know what's there. And I put the little comment on there that says the black holes have no hair is the comment. So you know, I'm turning into a black hole. But um, black holes have no hair means they don't have any properties that you can see. You, you can know only a couple of things about a black hole. So you can know three of them. So black holes, uh, in addition to being very complicated, are very simple. A black hole has a mass, so it has some amount of material. It, ha it can have an electrical charge. If you put a lot of electrons into a black hole, it would be you know, negatively charged. If you put a lot of protons in, it would be positively charged. And it can have a spin. That's it. Those are the only three things you can know about a black hole. No composition, no nothing. You know, what is a black hole made of? It doesn't matter. There's no way to tell what it's made of. And a black hole is a black hole whether it's made up of a dead collapsed star or you know, uh, uh, the same amount of bricks or the same amount of peanut butter. You, know, you push it all, crunch it down to that same amount. It behaves exactly the same. You lose all that information is lost when it's crushed. When you crush something to a black hole, these are the only three things that will remain. So the black hole can have some sort of spin associated with it, some sort of electrical charge, although that's normally going to be neutral just because the electromagnetic force is so strong that if you make a black hole that's negatively charged, what's it going to do? It's going to attract all the positively charged ions, no, not gravitationally, but electromagnetically. It's going to pull them to it. So it's going to tend to neutralize itself anyway. So, and then it has its mass, some amount of matter that it has. So those are the three things, those are the one things we can actually know about a black hole. What was next? Existence of black holes. Okay. This is what we talked about a little bit before we'd asked, you'd ask, you guys had asked about. The best way we can look for a black hole is to look for a star that's orbiting with something else that we can't see. And that's too massive to be anything else. The picture here is showing this star, one of your nice catalog names, right? Yeah. HDE226868. Okay. Nice catalog name. But here's the star here. And this blowing up, this blow-up object here, this little rectangle is here, shows you where the X-ray, there's an X-ray source. So that would be located somewhere right in the middle of this frame here. It's not associated with any of the other objects there. It's invis so it's invisible. We can determine how much mass is there. I'll show you that on the next slide. But we can determine how much mass is there because they're orbiting each other. And remember, Kepler's laws say that if we can determine the orbit, I can determine the mass. So Newton rewrote Kepler's third laws to be able to tell us that. But there's an X-ray source where there shouldn't be anything. Most stars don't emit X-rays. Certainly little faint stars that would be invisible to us wouldn't emit X-rays. White dwarfs don't emit x-rays. Neutron stars don't emit x-rays on, on a normal basis. Yeah, if you get some matter on them, we talked about the x-ray bursters, but not a continuous x-ray source. But you could have x-rays if you have material from this, very from this star spiraling into a black hole. And if we look at the numbers here, I think I gave you the numbers on the next page, yeah. This is called Cygnus X1, very good candidate. The star that we can see is about 25 times the mass of the sun. The total mass 
we take the orbit and we determine how long that star is orbiting and how far, what the, what the distance of the orbit is approximately, the whole mass is about 35 times the mass of the sun. So this x-ray source then has to be 35 minus 25 or 10 times the mass of the sun. So 10 solar masses, that's a, I mean that's a lot. That's more than the limit for a white dwarf which was 1.4. That's more than the limit for a neutron star, which is about three. Not just barely more where, well, it's a measurement error, but three times as much. So it seems like this is just one candidate, one of the, be one of the better ones, that could be a black hole. Something that could very well be, or likely is, a black hole. Something ten times the mass of the sun, emitting very strong x-rays from a very, very small, invisible object. You can look like you see the gas, sort of as I showed you in the diagram here. So material is getting pulled from the star in towards the black hole. And again, it makes a disk around it so it doesn't just get pulled in and isn't just sucked in. It actually comes in with some sort of speed and it actually ends up orbiting around the black hole and sort of slowly spiraling in. And the other thing is the time scale variations in brightness. So the X-ray brightness changes on very, very short times, and very, very short times, we're talking, we're talking even your know, fractions of a second. So something very, very small. When something varies coherently on a very sm short time scale, it has to be incredibly tiny. You know, the sun can't, you know, a galaxy, do a galaxy, because galaxies are real big, but a galaxy can't vary in brightness over periods of minutes or days or weeks even just because it's so big. It takes a long time for it to coherently vary, you know, to get up and back down in brightness. It takes it, it can't do that. So the very short time scale variations also tell us when you see anything that's varying on a very, very short time scale, tells us that it must be very small as well. So questions. Questions on black more questions on black holes? Had a few good ones already? Oops, just put this up there. What would the, uh, some of them have been observed with the Hubble telescope? I mean, but you'd see the same, I mean, you'd see more detail and you'd be able to resolve more, but you still wouldn't, I mean, it's, you're still not going to be able to see the black hole if that's what you're, you know, it's not something that you're ever going to be able to see. You can see the effects of it, you can see its gravitational effects, you can see what it's doing to the light and the material spiraling into it. But once anything gets into that black hole, I mean, it's, for us, it's a black hole. You can't see it. So if its event horizon is this big, there's a space that big that we can't see anything. But we can see the difference in the light behind it. Though. Right. We can see, we can detect its gravitational effects. So we can see how light is bent around it, but we can't, nothing coming out of the black hole itself. It would still be, you know, depending on the size, it would still be a big blank spot. Big, but big, but very tiny, right? The three, sun is three kilometers. Some of these bigger ones would be talking 10, 20 kilometers. Biggest ones would get a little bigger when you talk about the centers of galaxies. But still, you're talking about something very small relative to anything in the universe. Anything else? Okay. There's others, and we'll be looking at um, supermassive black holes coming up in the next chapter. We'll start that when we talk about our galaxy. Um, about a million solar masses. And centers of the galaxy, centers of many galaxies, not just ours. Ours is probably about three to four million solar masses. There's actually some that are pushing a billion solar masses, so incredibly massive black holes. And we can measure those just based on the motions of stars very close to the center of the galaxy, and we can determine how much mass has to be inside there, very compact in order to explain the motions, in order to explain what we see occurring gravitationally. So, yes sir, Cameron. Uh, when light enters a black hole, mm -hmm. um, does it get shrunk down relative to the black hole's size? Well, light is just a, probably doesn't have a size to it, so. Yeah. It's not going to get shrunk, you know, the way anything else, anything else would just get, cru would get crushed, essentially, right. to very small, but light itself would be, I just can't tell you what goes on inside the black hole is, you know, is tough. <laughs> yeah. I'm, trying, I'm trying to visualize what, what happens inside of it, like where does everything go? Eventually, I mean, the theory is, it would, the initial theory is that it all goes down to the singularity. 
so that everything is just crushed into the singularity at the center. And, and they never, black holes, they don't grow, they just... They grow in terms of they can, can they do collect matter slowly. They do. You know, if you had a star with a black hole orbiting it, yes, that material would go into the black hole, you, and it would get bigger. So black holes can grow slowly over time. I just, the point I wanted to give was that they're not a big vacuum cleaner, that they're going to just, oh, they're sucking everything in around them, you know. It's only if material gets real close to it. Gravity would get stronger and stronger as it got bigger. I mean, at the center of these galaxies, certainly a large a black hole grew larger and larger. It probably didn't start as a million solar masses. It probably started smaller, and you know, but they're so close to when you get things close together there, and as they orbited close, they'd get too close, and you combine black holes and eventually make something bigger. Yes, sir. Um, I don't know if you know the answer to this. I'll try. But, um, why did like a theory come up saying that like black holes? Because once you get inside a black hole, you really don't, our physical laws break down. So pretty much anything is possible. I mean, time travel within a black hole is possible. When you're in a black hole, uh, how's the way I've seen it described? Is that space-time, or space and time are one, but space-time gets so jumbled up that, you know, if you're inside the event horizon, you can travel through time. Can't get out. So you can't travel through time and get back out, but you can get. But there's also possibilities if they talk about wormholes, so the black hole bends space so that it you know, takes it in here and opens that material out someplace else. But it gets mainly because so, so much breaks down at that singularity that almost anything's game. You know, what, what could happen, it's, it's wide open until we have a gravity that actually, a theory of gravity that can actually explain what goes on at something that compressed. That's the biggest problem. Okay. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here for one second before I do the review. So I had a couple short clips I wanted to show you, too. Did I remember to put them up here? Yep. OK. I have a couple little clips I wanted to show you. This sort of does a little bit more on the event horizon and the singularity I sort of wanted you to see. As it's spiraling into the black hole, you actually can see the material. So you can see it as it's getting close to the black hole, but not once it crosses that event horizon. Once that occurs, the information is gone. So, question. Yes, sir? How can anything leave a black hole? How can anything leave a black hole? Uh, it can't directly. There is a method of evaporation of a black hole where it can slowly lose mass. That does happen. It's called Hawking radiation. Stephen Hawking you've probably heard of, who devised the idea that you could have in space, in a vacuum, you can create a particle and its antiparticle. So you can create an electron and a positron, and they'll occur, and usually they'll create and evaporate right away. But if that were to occur near a black hole, there's the possibility that they create, and one goes into the black hole, and one comes out. So the, that matter had to come from someplace, and it's eventually matter slowly being lost from the black hole, and that a black hole would slowly over time evaporate. Very slowly. Very small black holes would evaporate very quickly. Very big, massive black holes, like solar mass black holes, or the ones we talk about in the galaxies, would take, you know, trillions upon trillions upon trillions of years to ever evaporate. So they would slowly, they, we would slowly lose mass. They do slowly lose mass through this evaporation method that Hawking predicted. <coughs> but it's not a particle, it's not like something is getting out of the black hole, it's energy escaping that's being converted to mass. So it's not, you're not getting information out of the black hole still. Anything else? Okay, I'll summarize chapter 13. We talked about neutron stars produced by a super, possibly produced by a supernova. And again, that was the type 2 supernova, a massive star that exploded and compacted its core. Their neutron star is very, very dense, spins extremely quickly. Now, several times a second, tens of times a second, hundreds of times a second for some of the fastest spinning ones, and have extremely strong magnetic fields. So, very intense magnetic fields, and that's where we see them as a pulsar. If we see them as a pulsar when that beam passes in front of us, if that beam from the pulsar happens to pass in front of us. In, an, in a binary system, we talked about the nova in terms of a white dwarf collecting matter and igniting nuclear reactions on its core. On, its, on that surface, well, a neutron star can do the same thing. A neutron star in a binary system can collect material from the, a companion star, such as this we looked at for the black hole, and eventually give off 
a much more intense, instead of a burst of visible light, a burst of x-rays. And that's where we see the x-ray bursters. We talked about gamma-ray bursters as well, and no, they don't continue the analogy. You know, we had white dwarfs and novas, and we had neutron stars and x-ray bursters. Well, gamma rays really aren't black holes. It's not material condensing onto a black hole, but could possibly be to, to neutron stars colliding and an intense burst of energy as they collide, or due to the hypernova. So that's sort of that stalled supernova where it started to form, a black hole did form at the center, and then the material starting to accrete into that black hole emits a lot of energy and reignites the supernova. So it becomes much more intense. And then we've talked about the remnants. You had a white dwarf was at most 1.4 times the mass of the sun, neutron star about three times. Anything larger than that, there's nothing known that can stop the collapse. So according to our current theory, that's when it can collapses down to a point, what we call the singularity. That's explained by general relativity, which describes gravity, how we warp space-time. So it's not gravity as a force between two objects as we did under Newton, but it's really that gravity warps space and causes things to move around on their shortest path. So that's the typical path that things would want to take because space has been, has been warped. Anything that, events, uh, that crosses that event horizon is trapped. So that might be something very easily seen where you can see material spiraling into it. It could be in a much larger black hole that it's too far away and you can pass into that event horizon sort of as they talked about with the waterfall. You know, you're not going to know where that point is where you can no longer swim faster than the water, but once you've passed it, you're not getting back up. You know, you're going to go down the waterfall. Same thing with the, with the event horizon. You're going you're to get there, you're not necessarily going to know when you got there especially in a very big black hole. And we define things like the event horizon and the Schwarzschild radius. That's just that point. That's how far it is from the central point of the black hole, the singularity, to that edge where we can know nothing. And then finally, when you're getting close to that, if you're observing it from a distance, you're getting close to a black hole, very strong redshift, extreme. I mean, in the, extreme in the fact that you're not just changing things by a little bit within the wavelength like we see when we talk about the Doppler shift for the most part, but you actually see extreme. You're changing, you know, things that are produced as x-rays may come out as radio waves if they're produced that close to the black hole. And that material will produce x-rays, and we've seen a number of candidates. There's a lot of x-ray sources, there's a lot of candidates there, there's candidates at the center of our galaxy for a black hole, just because we can look at the orbits. We can look at the stars orbiting that, and I'll show you some of that when we start talking about our galaxy and the other galaxies next time. So. Uh, if there's other questions, otherwise don't forget the quiz is available on D2L through today and homework six, if you have it now, I'll take it or get it emailed to me by the end of the day. So, have a good one and I'll see everybody Thursday.